Hello and welcome to the American Cinema Foundation podcast. I'm your host, Titus, and today I'm joined by one of my academic friends, Flag Taylor. Flag is a professor of political science at Skidmore College in New York, and he is the author and editor with another one of our common friends, Carl Eric Scott, of Totalitarianism on Screen, The Art and Politics of the Lives of Others, the great German movie about communism in East Germany. Say hello, Flag, and what are we doing today? Hello, happy to be here. Um, I am looking forward to talking about Gran Torino. The movie came out in 2008, and it was the last time Clint Eastwood both starred in and directed the picture, and in that sense it was his last very personal picture. Flag and I have been talking about this movie for years, but last week was Clint Eastwood's 80th anniversary, and to commemorate the occasion I wrote a big essay for National Review about Clint Eastwood, civic virtue, and the restoration of manliness. And all the while this movie was on my mind, and so I'm happy to get the chance to talk about it now. Flag and I agree that this movie was almost prescient about the political themes of 2016. Populism, the white working class, the importance of work that is to say for a dignified life, and the serious changes that have occurred in American society, some of which are importantly changes for the worse. Gran Torino came up with the last great Clint Eastwood character, Walt Kowalski. Walt is a Polish Catholic, Korean War veteran, lives in a suburb of Detroit, has raised a family, and as the movie opens, has to bury his wife. So, so what do we learn about this guy in the opening scenes before he even says anything? I think we, we learn, <clears throat> first and foremost, that he is disoriented, I think, in a world that at least the external part of it was mostly navigated by his wife. And so he's confronting everyday things and the external world, I think, in a way that he hadn't before. Maybe we can say things are coming at him in a kind of unfiltered way. And so I think he's clearly a man who's going through some grief, although you don't see too much of that because of his just the way he carries himself. Right. He doesn't externalize his his grief, but you can you can sense it. But um, I think first and foremost, we see a man who's disoriented and not quite sure about how to navigate a world that, again, he had been shielded from to some extent. Yeah, I think the grieving point is is especially important. He has to organize a funeral and a wake, and that's when people condole with you. That's when people try to share in your suffering and to alleviate it in a certain way. And he doesn't like that. He doesn't want to show his grief, and for that reason he also doesn't want to accept consolation. He's especially dismissive of the generic brand Catholicism of the young priest, who means well, but he has no idea what he's talking about. Yeah. And that is a show of the intensity of his grief. He doesn't want it debased. I think that's right. And the other thing that comes out quite clearly right from the beginning is this kind of lack of a relationship with his sons. I was going to call it strained, but I think strained is actually too specific. There just isn't much of a relationship. And so it feels strained because he just doesn't know how to connect with them. I think, again, it was his wife who had probably taken the lead in all their interactions together. And so now that he's supposed to connect with them directly, there's no kind of foundation, there's no kind of basis for it. And he he even admits that uh, later in the film, I think that's one of the three sins that he lists when he finally goes to confession near the end is that uh, he just doesn't know his two sons very well. I think that's the third one. I think that comes out very clearly right away. 
yeah, he does in the end say that he's lived with this all his life, but he never shows it. It's the work of the movie that makes us as the audience feel the strain and the pain of these attempts to communicate in a time of grief and mourning that all fail. This is a time when love should pour forth and try to salve the wounds, but it doesn't. It is fairly clear that at this point all that Walt has is ceremony. You do a funeral in a certain way. If you're a Catholic like he is, you do a wake in a certain way and he can do these things and he does these things. He never stops to talk to people. He can do ceremony. He can't do free, open conversation. He doesn't wear his heart on his sleeve. And that leaves him alone. It I think you also have to put some of the responsibility on the two sons. I mean, primarily the one son that we get to know. We don't really interact much with the other one. Clearly, the son that is most prominent in the film has not been taught how to behave in these circumstances. He doesn't know what he's supposed to do. And he doesn't make, I, I would say he does not make much effort in terms of finding out really pressing his father and, and finding out what he wants and, and what he needs i mean you get the kind of um pro forma how are you doing dad but there isn't much beyond that so i think the one son and his family is supposed to embody a way of being in the world that just has a kind of limited scope and so i don't know if we're supposed to it's interesting i wonder if we're supposed to wonder whether that's a failure of his late wife or, or what I think the son and the family are portrayed in such a way that we're just supposed to be almost shocked by their limited purview emotionally and all sorts all sorts of ways. Yeah. You start out with the family not caring for their father and grandfather. It turns out that in important ways the father hadn't cared for them either. He didn't know, he says, how to take care of people. He was obviously a good protector and provider, but he was not anything else as a father. That's really the only thing that he has in common with his sons. They're aloof. This suggests something about American manliness, that friendship is within the family, if there, and it's really hard even among the generations to keep it going. Mm -hmm. Each dealt with things through his wife. His son does the same thing. It's the wife that presses him to see his father, to talk to him. Right, yeah, that's a good point. She's not very careful or concerned, but she does try. So you see the relationship of men and women here. Women just are more intelligent when it comes to society, community, trying to keep people together, get them to talk to each other, and provide venues or occasions. Now, there's nothing left, really. These men are really alone with each other in a way that they hadn't been when the wife was alive. And they really failed, both of them, miserably. I think both have good excuses and there's blame on both sides. But at the end of it, that's what you're left with. Everybody has great excuses. Old man Walt, he snarls at the impertinence and lack of manners of his grandchildren. His sons tell themselves nobody can say we didn't try. Respectability is what you say on your way out. It's mm -hmm. a mm -hmm. nice shield for every man for himself. Right. There's a kind of problem there, I think, partly because of what we're shown, that there's a distinction between 50s and late 60s America. Walt made his family after the Korean War. He was a veteran. He lives in a fairly small house, but with a garage. He worked for Ford and managed to buy himself a really sweet-looking Ford. And that's part of the American dream. A man who works hard can sustain a family and get a sense of freedom out of that. The Ford is his sense of his own dignity or freedom. It's the closest thing an American not somewhere in the Southwest can have to a horse. 
Yeah, and you can tell that he takes care of his house fairly quickly. You, you can kind of see the contrast between his house and surrounding homes. And so he takes a kind of pride and meticulous care of the yard. And, and then, of course, that really comes out when you walk into his garage and you see the tools organized. This is a man that is quite organized and knows how to care for his home. And he's living in a neighborhood, obviously, where that is no longer the rule. I'm sure if you had taken a picture of that whole neighborhood 30 years ago, the whole neighborhood would have looked like Walt's home. And now he's sort of this island in this sea of decrepit, careless, careless places. So Yeah, that's that's one major reason Walt is the kind of angry old man shouting, get off my lawn, literally. Yeah. Because he's baffled by how he ended up the, the only guy of his kind. This is not a man who prides himself on being exceptional. He thinks that this is how things work. Yeah. And they used to be. He used to recognize himself in other people. There was a similarity that no longer obtains. The pride of work really does show that in his garage there is beauty. The car is beautiful, but the order of the tools is also beautiful. That tells you something about how he understands his life. That you have to put order into things and maintain it. That's what a man should yep. be doing. And that makes him incredibly lonely. Of course, the, you, you just can't run human relationships in the way you can run the relationships of order and organization in your work or garage. There just is a difference. But even so, it's too shocking a difference in this case. Because also, this kind of world of work has kind of disappeared. Yeah, and there's, there's that wonderful scene with Tao when they're in the garage together and Walt is explaining to him how he acquired all the tools because Tao says, well, I can't afford any of this. And, and Walt says, well, I've acquired these tools over 50 years. It's not like I went to the hardware store 30 years ago and bought everything. This has been a gradual process. And he says something like every tool has its purpose. But then he's also very humble and he says, look, um, any human being can solve most household tasks with WD-4 and duct tape you know <laughs> here here you go that's all you need yeah that that's an all-american sentiment that yeah <laughs> And it does help relate him to Tao, the fact that he never overplays his expertise or his skills, allows for a certain kind of, not equality, but connection. He's mm -hmm. not all-knowing and everybody else knows nothing. He's just more dutiful in a way. Yeah. And that allows him to help other people and for them to learn from him. It's, right. When you learn from people, you're not equals, but you are together in a meaningful way. You do share in a good thing together. And he yeah. does have that to offer. That seems like that's another reason he's so aloof. Not a lot of people take him on that offer anymore. I think the word dutiful is a good one. And the, the other word I would use is attentive. The other beautiful scene where this comes out, it's just very quick, is when he goes, he's at the Hmong house and they go into the basement and he sees that the dryer is just rocking. Yeah. And so he just leans down and unscrews the foot of the dryer yep. and he fixes it. Right. <laughs> and then he has that conversation with the young Hmong woman and she says, well, what do you fix? He says, well, I just fixed your dryer. <laughs> so it's none of this stuff. He's not a uh, expert carpenter that makes uh, beautiful wooden shelves or something. It's yeah. just is yeah. attentive and dutiful and, and yeah. does things that need so, done. It's not rocket science. Yeah, he doesn't say have an ambition to build a car or design one from scratch. He's perfectly proud of being a part of Ford, of the car making process and of the beautiful things it made. He does think of his knowledge as practical because it offers freedom. If you take care of your things, they can work for you. Yeah. You can get something out of them that's worth getting. And you can respect yourself because you don't feel you're an alien in your own house. 
Right. And that's also partly why he's humble about it. He knows that anybody else could be doing, should be doing this in his own house. He's not looking right. to lord it over anybody else's house. That's a good point because it, it explains his disorientation. All this is is being attentive and <laughs> noticing when the dryer is off kilter. And so it just shocks him that something so easy and that can be taken care of so matter-of-factly. Again, you don't need any kind of special uh, mechanical training for any of this stuff. I think that's what he finds most disorienting is that people have lost their way in this world. He thinks just with a little bit of thoughtfulness and attentiveness, you can navigate and make work to your advantage pretty easily. Yeah, and this is a large part of what it is that he has to offer and what makes him so interesting. This has two kinds of, as it were, social consequences. One of them is that he cares about manners because that's one way you make yourself useful to others. They make themselves useful to you. You know where you stand to each other. It makes life easier, especially when you don't know people very well or like Walt, you're more than a little aloof, withdrawn. Mm -hmm. it, it gives you an easy way to deal with other people in terms of each tool has its purpose. Also, human beings have relationships to one another that require such and such of me and expect such and such of you in return. It makes it easier for people to deal with one another and to be helpful. One reason he dislikes the freedom of young people is that they don't bother to help other people out, especially elders and especially old women. That's the sort of thing that he sees and snarls at. There's that great scene when, with, I think this is the... I think this that's the scene where this is what changes his mind about Tao, I think. He sees Tao run across the street to help the lady that had spilled her groceries. Yeah. Um, I think that was handled very well because up to that point, he wasn't quite sure how he was going to handle his relationship to him. We might have had the sense that he wanted to do something for him, but didn't have the confidence that the kid was sort of worth saving. And I think that's the moment where Walt decides, okay, he's, he's worth my time. I can... Yeah. There's something there's something there I can work with. Wolf is snarling again at some kids who are making fun of the old lady with the grocery bags opened up spilling over the driveway and he's getting up to do something about it himself and then he sees the boy run and do it. The boy is young, Walt can't run anymore, but they're the same in this sense. For once mm -hmm. he has something in common with this boy. The only other thing they have in common is that they don't talk. Neither of one of them is able to talk. They have to be <laughs> dominated by women just to talk. But now he sees the boy act for once and he sees him when the boy can't see him back. He therefore feels like he sees the kid as who he really is. What is your spontaneous, your gut reaction, kid? What do you do in a situation like this? The boy is wanting to help, not just willing, but, but he's eager. He doesn't wait to be asked or to be imposed on. And that suggests something else, that uh, there is a kind of moral ground for learning skills. You have to be interested in helping other people. Mm -hmm. It's not essentially self-involved. Any skilled craftsman always looks like he's absorbed in his work, and he's annoyed when people are in his way. And there's a lot of truth to that, but it's not the whole truth. There's a question about, where are you there in somebody's house in the first place? There are other ways to make money money. Walt's kids, they're in sales and he kind of hates that because he kind of feels it's not real work. And, right. and they think that he takes that to mean that they don't have the character he does see in this boy. It's hard to get to see somebody's character without manners because you don't see them act. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. But when you do see the character, he identifies with that. He's also wanting to help. He doesn't get much of a chance anymore and in a sense he gets a chance to do it in a new way. It's fairly obvious that the young Hmong boy, Tao, is a new son for him and he has a chance to do it right this time. And you get a sense of what he would have wanted to teach his own kids but it never worked out. 
This seems to be why he's so not necessarily resentful, but certainly disappointed in them. Mm -hmm. He does make snide, sarcastic comments at their unwillingness to help, at their laziness. They don't have the hop to it character he sees in that boy. That counts for something, but, but it is just a fleeting scene and you see that he doesn't want to examine too closely what this desire to be helpful means. But it's necessary for it to be there or else you can't build on it. Right, that's right. Before we get into uh, his relationship and transformation once he becomes involved with the Hmong family, uh, one thing I wanted to talk about is this question of racism. I remember talking to, to friends uh, when the movie came out, and uh, I mean, I think one of the, the reasons why the film was noteworthy initially was because it, in a way, is so shocking, yep. right, that you, you, you hear the words gook and slope and you yep. know, all of these... There must be at least a dozen ethnic slurs there. Yeah, it's, uh... And I guess and the Mongs aren't the only targets, right? I mean, you hear Italian slurs and Polish slurs and, yep. and... all sorts of things, and so I think the movie created a stir in part because it was uh, you know the very opposite of politically correct eastwood was willing to to um have this this dialogue in the screenplay that just portrayed speech sort of shockingly raw way but i wonder what you thought uh, i have my own opinion about this are we supposed to think that uh, Walt is racist in some substantive sense? I mean, does he really have a kind of antipathy towards the Hmong people or, or even, you know, non-white people in general? Well, and, and that does that suggest he becomes transformed over the course of the film, that he goes from being racist to not racist? You have two kinds of disagreements between ethnicities, but I think the level to start at is family. Walt treats his family worse than he does strangers because he expects more of them and is disappointed more in them. A man who cannot prefer his own family to other ethnicities doesn't really have the ground for racism in the first place. Secondly, one thing he teaches the Hmong boy is the old American racism of ethnic jokes between all sorts of people who are now called white, but didn't think of each other as my brother white man or what, whatever. Right. The, the, the Italians and the Polish have any number of jokes at each other's expense, although they do have one big thing in common, Catholicism. But ethnic humor is still there because these people know that their first instinct is to turn to their own community, and there's always something touchy about foreigners, about somebody who's Irish or Italian, or Polish. All these three big Catholic parts of American immigration are represented, actually. The sentiment there is that ethnic humor makes it okay to acknowledge that we all turn to our own community first and that we think of other communities as weirdos, but at the same time you have to do it in a way that's not essentially insulting or hateful, because you have to live with those people and their people too. It's way easier to acknowledge that when everybody's a Catholic or when everybody's already Americanized, and maybe there's something to be said for the fact that everybody's the same skin color, more or less. But Walt is not just an equal opportunity hater. He'll shout at anybody, get off my lawn, whatever color their skin. But he's also aware in important ways of the things that make racism less consequential or that abstract Americans from that. One of them is that his respect for work means that he can work with any of these people and respect their work, even though he doesn't understand or practice it, without any condescension or any ill will. These are people mm -hmm. who can work for a living in constructions or who can work for a living as barbers or, or in the port plant. And that's not a summer job or a stepping stone to something you'd actually do. This is their life work and they're fairly proud of it. 
they're they're partly proud of the fact that they can take the hardship. That's also part of the tough jokes they make at each other's expense. They prove their manhood by being able to take it and to dish it out without turning bloody-minded. And that's also something they have in common, the dignity of work and the dignity of withstanding hardship. Ultimately, I guess that's the army. As a veteran, he saw one community where it no longer mattered. Korea actually is when the army began to be integrated. Mm-hmm. That's one experience of what all Americans can have in common. For better and for worse, he's, he's still horrified by what he did as a soldier, but he also believed he had to do it. For better and for worse, he has all these experiences as a man at work, at, at war, and then just in banter, in comedy holding his own, that transcend race. Yeah. So I think what you're saying, and this was my instinct too, is that um, I don't think we're given much substantive reason to think that Walt is a racist in the precise substantive sense of having some abstract judgment, right, about the capacity of of, of Asians or, or something. I mean, I think he uses these these slangs in part because of what you said, that this is just the way he knows that men talk to one another. And so it's a kind of external form, but I don't think there's much substance to it. Um, no, it's I think just a way too, to, just a way to deal with two facts of individual behavior. Oh, yeah. uh, he's too attentive to being keen on trying to judge people for, for what they do. Yeah, and uh, he so also respects that. community. Go ahead. Uh, sorry to interrupt you, but he also respects community. He likes the fact that the Hmong are Hmong. He doesn't think that they should stop being that. He wants to teach these kids his all-American ways, but they're not supposed to stop them from being as they are. In fact, he admires a lot about them that he doesn't have himself. That shows a capacity to live with his own ignorance and his own prejudices in the hope of being better. He is a man who has the courage of his prejudices. He knows that he's uncomfortable among the Hmong and will joke about it because it relieves some of the discomfort and it allows him to acknowledge that he just doesn't know how these people do things. Right. He's willing to help because somebody treats him in a friendly way. That's what ethnic jokes do. They mean that although you're different ethnicities, you can be friendly, you can have fun together. You have something in which you can share at the border of ethnicities, and that's a way to get in. That's a way to get into somebody else's way of life, into somebody else's home. His prejudices don't prevent him from seeing that somebody else is different, or that when somebody else is different, he may be admirable. In fact, they make it possible. You have to notice the differences between people. He's not an individualist who thinks that we're all abstract concepts, or that we're whatever we say we are. He judges people by their actions and by how they live. Part of that is their community and their ethnicity. Part of that is completely removed from it. Yeah. Yeah, that's a good way to put it. The only question is, you know, what's your access there? His access is friends. Somebody introduces him to this or that, and then he can feel, in a certain way, part of it. He's always shown to be careful both when he respects and when he disrespects people. His ethnic jokes are precise, and so is his respect for other people's manners when he learns about it. He does pay attention and defers to their own way out of respect. Yeah, maybe that's, and this too helps explain maybe the criticism of the film, I think the misplaced criticism that, you know, the, the ending is is, uh, is too much, and, and this idea that he goes from this irredeemable, white, racist, cranky old guy to a someone who, self, who, who sacrifices himself for this Hmong family. I mean, I think that criticism goes away once you acknowledge what we were just talking about, that he's not actually racist in the way that we think at the beginning of the film that it's much more subtle and complex. And I think that makes the end more plausible. There's less of a transformation than, than you might think. 
Yeah, it's just that as an audience, we, we have to get to know Walt too, and it's actually hard to get to know him, especially because he doesn't talk much about himself. He's not part of a generation that's all about self-expression. If yeah. anything, he thinks repression is good and necessary and dignified. Repress yourself, don't express everything. Not everything right. that comes into your head has to come out of your mouth. <laughs> that, yeah. That's who he is. And so it is hard to get to know him. There are all sorts of surprises, but he's really more a man looking for an opportunity, as it were, than a kind of transformation. He wants to see that people are good people and good Americans, and he thinks the two go together. But he's not particular about it. He's, he takes people as he sees them. And that's mm -hmm. a fairly rare quality. It is the case that, you know, I, I run a podcast here. I'm not going to say the thing this character says, because I know Americans really blanch at these words. And that's inevitable in, among strangers when you're always afraid you might give offense or that somebody might destroy your career. Mm -hmm. That's the world of business and, and jobs that really makes political correctness what it is. This guy has no such concerns. But it has to be said in his defense that when he was working, these prejudices wouldn't have cost him his job. And now when he's outspoken, he doesn't have a job anymore because he's retired. He really can afford the loneliness to which this exposes you. Mm -hmm. Other people, mm -hmm. when once you get called racist, you might as well be marked with the brand of Cain. That's yeah. almost impossible to walk away from. But it's of no concern to him. It's partly because of circumstance, partly because of his own manly aloofness. It's just much easier for him to take than for any else. Everybody else is weirded out by this guy, and it shows that Americans are strangers now in the way they were not 60 years ago. Right. Some of it is for good, and some of it is for bad. But there is a massive difference. Even his children are way different because they're baby boomers. They live in much bigger houses, they live in much more comfortable ways, and from his point of view, they're lazy slackers. Mm -hmm. They might say that they're just enjoying the good things in life. But even that comes at a cost. You know, you can't get along with your father anymore. Some might think it's too high a price to pay, actually. Right. When you can, um, and this is where I think you can see, you can start to see a more substantive change in him. That might be even too strong. But, but a kind of maybe more subtle evolution when he comes to be connected to the Monk family after he... But the initial... The, the, the scene that comes first, right, is the one where he goes out into the front yard and points the rifle at the, at the gang. Yep. Does that come... Is that right? Does that come yep. before the scene where he catches Tao trying to steal the Gran Torino? Yes, I think so. I think that's right. Yes. And so he does seem to, to come to appreciate the Monk family... Um, certainly in a way he hadn't before when he sees that they appreciate his deeds he comes to appreciate the fact that they're trying to navigate their way and defend decency in the midst of this broader community and so i i think that does cause him to think twice about i guess writing people off right that that he's he, the, the the way that he decides i think after the death of his wife that he's going to navigate the world is just going to kind of retreat and defend his turf Yes. And sort of defend defend his turf, and that, that's sort of the beginning and the end of the way he's going to live his life. And I think his connection to the Mong family makes him question that instinct. And so it brings him out, obviously, out of his shell, transforms him in a way where he's willing to, to risk a connection to other people and to actually make new friends, right? He actually calls Tao his friend on more than one occasion, which I think is important. Yes. And then you have that w wonderful scene uh, where he has, the, he has them over for a barbecue. And so I, I think there you do see a kind of substantive transformation that, that is real. Yeah, in his own way, late as it is, he, is, he learns stuff from his wife. He starts doing the things that she would have had to do before. 
he tries to get the boy to summon up the courage to ask for a date. He asks him about how he's gonna go on his date. All these kinds of things that you wouldn't expect to, from him and that he had given no evidence of before. And it is the case that all of it starts with this really stark distinction between his own family and the Hmong family. His own family, both for his fault and for theirs, they just can't get along in any way and they treat him as if they want him to be a cripple so they can get rid of him with good excuses. They come bringing gifts that suggest that he's, uh, he can't do anything anymore. One of them is a phone with big numbers so that he can see, whereas you see he's blind as a bat, and to suggest that he has to call for help. You need a big phone for, you know mm -hmm. that, you're gonna die, you need a phone. And the other one is a stick to help him reach things and grab right. them because he's a cripple. He can't even touch, not just see or speak. That's how they spring it on him with cake that they want to put him in a retirement home. Now, whatever may be said about retirement homes, anybody could tell with two looks that it's not for Walt Kowalski. And mm -hmm. these people, of course, know he's going to refuse. They're just trying to make it better for themselves so that they can go out saying to each other, nobody can say we didn't try. Respectability mm -hmm. means you can get rid of your own father. He's just so unreasonable. Why won't he just say, okay, I'm weak, powerless, I'm afraid of death, and then I'll take whatever help anyone can throw at me? Well, he doesn't want to think of himself as weak and powerless. And it brings out, really, that there's not a lot of room for somebody like Walt Kowalski in America, which gels with the fact that a lot about that character shocked audiences, or not necessarily audiences, the chattering classes, the press, the, the movie critics, they were shocked that such a character could be put on screen, and people love him. This was a massively successful movie. Clint Eastwood's movies, which had been that successful, by the way, are these two comedies from 78 and 80, where he plays a blue-collar sort of hillbilly guy, a, a lovable prize fighter. Mm. <laughs> They're very low-class comedies that show that yeah, Clint yeah. Eastwood, even four decades back, admired certain things about low-class people. Not everything, but quite a lot. And he was willing to look at them as fellow Americans, even though he didn't live that way or hadn't grown up that way. But he recognized virtues in them that are just part of America. And they're fun, too. Just like uh, Walt's humor is fun. But that just doesn't cut it now. And then it's just much easier for him with the Hmong family. They come from a different world. And you can see that they don't treat him like a cripple. They treat him like a hero. Yep, yep. And that sets up uh, the entire plot. Somebody gives him the opportunity to be human by being a hero. That is to say, being able to protect somebody, which he does inadvertently. He doesn't just save them from a gang. They have to teach him that he saved them from a gang. Right. <laughs> only, you know, only in this way does, does the meaning of his action and the content of, of his protective manliness, only this way does it come alive for him too. He has to become aware of it. His first reaction is to throw all their gifts away. And you see, you know, maybe that's a broader indictment of society that people are offered gifts in friendship that they just throw away because they feel their individuality threatened. They feel their mm -hmm. territory invaded. Right. And that's the very opposite of the, the Hmong family, right? That's so highly formalized and with the eye contact and he touches the little girl's head and they're shocked. And yeah. The other scene that's worth talking about, I think, is the scene, uh, well, the whole scene when he's at the at the party um, in the Hmong house is wonderful. But it's the, at the end of that scene when he he meets, uh, I, f I forget it, does she call him a shaman? He, he meets the religious yep. figure. What does he, can you, I don't know if you remember this, but um, 
he gives a kind of reading of of Walt. He and calls the, the guy a witch doctor. <laughs> was it, was that was that what she calls him a witch uh, doctor? No, no. Yeah, she like calls that. him something like a shaman. He calls him a witch doctor in his usual dismissive oh, way. Yeah, I think she uses the word shaman. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And then the guy uh, gives him a reading and lay, knocks him flat in 30 seconds. He's the only Hmong guy except the girl who's willing to stare him in the eye. He has dispensation because he's their kind of religious authority. Nobody else yeah. has dispensation to stare you in the eye because it's too confrontational. Right. And right. that guy tells him that, yeah, people don't like you, do they? And you're afraid you're going to die, aren't you? Right, right. And, uh, and it's not just among the Hmong. Nobody in America would talk to him that directly. Right. But uh, the closest thing Americans in the movie are shown to have is their manly ethnic humor. That also apprises you of your regrets, of your own sense of your insufficiencies or failures or, or problems in, in various ways. But that's done in a comic way. This is straight, serious... You're, you're a lonely old man, people don't like you and you're gonna die, and there's always this suggestion there that it's really tough being alone, isn't it? Yeah. And of course, if it weren't, he wouldn't be there trying to meet a new family. I think he says, the shaman says something to Walt too, like, you, you, you're confused by the world, yep. or something like this, and so he's, yeah, I think he's shocked that someone is telling him <laughs> about his own disorientation. Yeah, you would think uh, if anybody, the shaman is confused by modern-day America. But no, he seems to be pretty much able to figure out what people are like by looking at them. He really pays attention. Yeah, yeah. That shaman knows more than the audience does at that point about Walt. And it takes the audience a whole second act to learn all these things about him. Yeah. And obviously, lots of movie critics didn't get it after the end either. He really is hard to figure out, so you maybe need a bit of help. And the girl that interprets this for him, because the shaman doesn't speak English, of course, she relays the information without any fear. She gives it to Walt straight. Yeah. So you see there, like, his friendship with the boy, there's a presumption of equality in it. That you can tell somebody what you really think about them, because they'll always have to take it knowing that you love them or like them, that you mean well and have proved that you mean well. It's not just words, it's actions. Mm -hmm. Friendship and love and care are actions here. These people have to take care of each other. Just like this family teaches Walt that what he thinks of as his anger and his going back to his Korean War weaponry, that it actually could be something completely different. It could mean protecting the weak from the lawless. Mm -hmm. And that he could think of himself much better than he does. And nobody else gives him this chance to think of himself as a dignified man. And I think it's telling and wonderful, too, that the girl is the one who kind of understands almost instinctively how she can connect with Walt by kind of meeting him at his level and sort of taking what he dishes out to her in terms of ethnic slurs and then kind of giving it back to him in terms of his the, the fact that he looks lazy and he sits on his porch and Drinks he doesn't beer. seem to do anything that she she's certainly comfortable in her uh, with her heritage and there's no sense that she's the least bit alienated from her Hmong relatives but she's also deeply american in, yep. in her in the sense that she's willing to kind of take risks and put herself out there and engage people directly without, you know, knowing how they're going to react. I mean, I think that has to be emphasized that she doesn't, she can't know for sure that he, he will react well to her initial interventions. Yeah, of course that, not. That, that took that took a lot of, that took a lot of courage to say yep. the least. And that's and the so first thing that Walt respects about her. Yeah. She looks him in the eye, talks to him straight and is not intimidated. He admires these qualities in people. Again, the, the he, his recourse to her, his first proof of friendship, is ethnic jokes. 
Yeah. That shows that we're the same in this. We can both take it. We're alike. Yeah. And she elevates him. She's a lot like what his wife must have been. Not just organizing a social calendar or a community, but in gentling his anger and turning it to good purposes. She understands him far faster than he understands her. And that's, I think, also something both American and non-American in her. It's American in the sense that she rises up to the challenge of equality and she has to hold her own against men, both in terms of fun, jokes, parties, and in terms of dealing with men's anger and domineering ways. It shows a kind of superior intelligence when it comes to human things. Yeah, and she uh, it's noteworthy, too, the contrast between her and the priest, right? She she gets away with calling um, Kowalski Wally. Yep. <laughs> you know, isn't that so feminine? It's... Walt, Walt, you know, he says, I'm Mr. Kowalski to you. So she she gets away with things that he won't let anyone else get away with at all. Yup. It, it also shows that he, he has a soft side and he does understand he needs to be gentle. Even something that could seem perfectly emasculating like a diminutive from a diminutive girl. You know, gruffly, but he does take it as affection and closeness. It's mm-hmm. uh, because the priest is giving his generic speech, but the girl is actually speaking to him as a human being and involves herself in his life. And it's not like the priest doesn't want to do that. He also tries to do that and and make some headway. He's just not as good as she is. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and, and of course, there's something else. She's indirect. She leads him gently, whereas the priest speaks from his authority. Yeah. The priest also learns to rule by women, so to speak. It's Walt's wife who was very pious and who prevailed on the priest to risk all the humiliations and abuse to get close to Walt. Mm-hmm. And the priest feels he has to do it because it's his duty, but he also feels like he has the authority to do it because he is yeah. a priest and they are his flock, but he needs this kind of entrance into Walt's world that women guard actually his late yeah. wife and then this young girl like his late wife has to introduce this priest into his life the young girl introduces her brother into his life and that silent shy boy who's very confused really needs a lot of help and yep. the women do that for him and, and it should the... also be said that the priest kind of learns eventually too that um, he should comport himself in a way with Walt that doesn't kind of specify the expectations or the results in a advance so i think the key scene there is when he comes to talk to walt after the the attack on the mong house they get out some beers and and they just talk to one another without any agenda you get the sense that that conversation is not shown but you have the sense that it's unscripted that they're just going to talk in a kind of unscripted way over a couple beers and i think that changes walt's view of of him uh, the priest and he, and walt also comes to appreciate that it takes a lot of courage for the priest to continue to press to try to get to walt given all of the um difficulties that Walt has put in his way. And so he, he, I think he comes to admire the courage of the priest to persist. And also he admires the fact that uh, this is just something that his wife has told the priest to do. And he's, the priest is, um, he's loyal to the, to the wife's wishes. So yep. it, I think that relationship develops nicely over the course of the film. And, and Walt is not, grows to appreciate the priest and not to dismiss him, you know, because he's 29 years old and... <laughs> <laughs> whatever yeah calls him a virgin yeah. and right he does start by dismissing what do you know you just sell superstitions to old women 
But then he learns that actually this young man is true to his word. Like he as an old man is true to his word. Yeah. If he said he'd do it, he's going to have to do it. And that does show a certain kind of manliness. And, and it prepares for that conversation they have. All you see about that conversation is that Walt invites him in, shows him where the beer is, and defers to him in the way of a conversation. Not as an authority, but he really does want to hear what's on the man's mind. They have to talk about something that's really grave and dangerous, a gang attack, but he has to listen to this guy. He feels Mm -hmm. that they're going to have to think this through. It's actually the only scene in the movie that's of a deliberative character. Mm -hmm. People Mm -hmm. talk over what's happening here, how do we deal with this? You see also that part of the work of the church, as shown there, the only part that's manly or is protective, the priest says and shows that he's willing to risk his life to work with Hmong people, despite the gangs. When at the end, the priest is taken away from the Hmong neighborhood, the cops have to take him bodily and as though arresting him for his own safety. Because he doesn't want to go away. He knows there's going to be danger and he has no interest in running away from it. He tries to do his part working within the Hmong community because they too are part of his flock. Not because they go to his church, but they're part of the community and they seem to be in need. That does show a protective work that uh, he has in common with Walt. Mm -hmm. It's also, by the way, the only moment where you see somebody who feels like he has a kind of community responsibility in that story. It's the only sign of hope you see in a Detroit suburb that looks wiped out or ruined. The way Walt deals with this is typical. He has the boy repair people's houses, do something useful for people, do some work for them, and and get the sense, incur their gratitude, give them a chance to show gratitude, and then give yourself a chance to receive praise and the good opinion of people for whom you can do a good thing. You'll know your worth then. So that's really good that he does that for the boy, but that's how he deals with these things. He doesn't think about the things that the priest thinks about or worry about the things the priest is worrying about because that's beyond his purview he doesn't have a community point of view right and how do you think um i've gone in different directions on this but something that you just said about the conversation with the priest and and walt after the attack about that being a very deliberative moment it strikes me that the decision that walt makes to sacrifice himself you know the the dramatic ending of the film that some people say is overwrought it strikes me that that is the that moment is the outcome of lots of deliberation on Walt's part, that, that he has put a lot of thought into it and has really contrived that moment out of lots of other options, right? And in, in, in his interactions with Tao, when they're talking about what to do, Walt, I think more than once says, you know, this is not the moment for rash action. Yeah. Um, I know you want vengeance, but, uh, you know, you can't really fall into that trap. And so over and over, you get this emphasis on Walt's part on the fact that this is the moment for deliberation. And we have to really think that through. And so that just your use of that adjective deliberative, that struck me because I think maybe that's something that critics have not noticed. Yeah. That this endpoint that Walt contrives is not something that's rash. It's not something that sort of comes to him in a, a kind of aha moment. It really does seem to be the outcome of him thinking through the various options. And this is actually a, a very precise way to do something that will result in a concrete good for that uh, for his neighbors. And yeah. that any other option might have secondary effects, which would be bad for the community. Yep. But this is actually the one thing that that he sees that as potentially good for for the community in general and not just for for Tao or for the the sister. What Walt is dealing with is on the one hand what he knows which is about the cycle of violence 
And on the other hand, the thing that he begins to grasp, that you have to protect innocence. The crucial thing for him turns out not to be the monk house getting shot in a drive-by, it's the fact that the girl gets raped. You can't let that go. It is not possible for people to be decent when that sort of thing can happen with impunity. The unrighteous will not let the righteous be. His first instinct is to beat people up, because that's how you protect people. He doesn't want to kill anybody, he just wants to punish them and to scare them. He has two scenes of violence at the same house. The first one he inflicts, the second one he incurs, and you can see how he thinks about them differently. The first one is not thought up. You can see that it doesn't involve any calculation. He beats a guy up, but he doesn't break his hands. You don't want people to beat people up or shoot them, break their hands. This has been known since time immemorial. But he's not mm -hmm. thinking in calculating terms. In the second case, everything is planned. The look is planned from his final gesture all the way to when he gets himself a funeral suit. Mm -hmm. Everything about the thing is planned in advance that shows self-awareness and uh, a serious decision about how this is going to play out practically. But there's another part of deliberation. It's not just getting this certain thing done, protecting the Hmong family from the gang which is partly related in blood to them. It's also something else. Are you really serious about innocence? And he sees here two reactions. The young girl is in certain ways oblivious. She wants to live in America where you're free to go around and that's how she ends up in trouble. The young boy is the opposite of that. He has deep anger in him and might turn into a monster. This is the thing that his gang cousin knows. That if you treat people like animals, they'll turn into animals. That's what mm -hmm. he's betting on. And yeah. Walt agrees with them. He takes this boy and cages him, literally. You cannot deliberate with the boy because right. he's too angry. Unlike the priest, he has no self-control. You have to trap him and tell him that he can't throw away his innocence even if he wants to. Mm -hmm. And that's part of Wall's self-understanding. There's only one thing really that he cares about in the church. It's the fact that he has blood on his hands. That he thinks of himself as essentially stained. And that's why he always goes back to Korea in his mind and he tells the priest... It's always there in your dreams and you see his weaponry and his kit is in working order as though he were still there. Mm -hmm. He has to decide on what does that really mean? Why, why do you do this sort of thing? Why be a soldier? Why have a war? Are you there to destroy people that make you angry or to protect the innocent? And uh, in a certain way you know what it is that he's interested about the priest. It's the fact that the priest tells him, look, I've talked to people who've gone through worse than you and they found hope and salvation. The guy says, well, I'm not interested. I, I believe you. He's not going to dismiss the experience of other veterans. They're all equals. But he feels like he can't share in that in the first act. Mm -hmm. At that point, he's already willing to listen to the priest who very astutely notices that Walt knows a lot about death and precious little about life. Yeah. But that's what he's interested in hearing from the priest. Is there really anything serious about what the faith can do to protect the innocent? Right. Yeah, I don't think... I'm not certain that Walt is interested in salvation. I, I think his self-sacrifice at the end is, again, the result of this deliberation that he thinks this is a very precise way that he can contribute himself to the community. I don't know that he expects salvation or desire salvation, but this is something that he thinks he can do for the community and he can do for, for Tao in, in particular. I mean, obviously, the, the Christian overtones are there, but I'm not so sure that Eastwood intends it in the way that uh, lots of the critics took it. Because remember, he goes to confession beforehand. Yeah. 
No, I don't think that this is his come to Jesus moment. I don't think the priest is there to catechize him and introduce him into to theology. Or, but it's unmistakable what the priest has to contribute to that conversation. The man isn't there to ask advice about tactics. Yeah. It's just that he has to do something he never did before. Sacrifice himself. Mm -hmm. Not kill the other guy, right? There's this great pattern quote. Patriotism isn't about dying for your country. It's about killing the other guy. He should die for his country. Right? <laughs> you gotta win the war. And that is who Walt was in Korea, but he has no experience of this other possibility that has to do with sacrifice. It is the case that he's not coming to Jesus. He doesn't. He is a, a man who makes peace, uh, right? He, he's blessed, as the gospel says, but it's not because he's all of a sudden uh, found a revelation. It's because he, he thinks that there is this other possibility that you could really protect innocence. His experience yeah. of himself as a young man is a loss of innocence, that he had to live all his life with blood on his hands. It is not hard to see why is it that his kids ended up so disappointing to him. Well, he's a man who never opens up. Now, what is it that he might have opened up? Death, what he did. But he can only talk to the priest about that because right. that's a secret. Uh, he wants to take it to his grave and the priest is going to have to take it to his grave as a man of his word. The question there is, you know, is this a worthwhile way of going to your grave? Is there anything serious about sacrifice? The priest doesn't endorse it. He doesn't believe that that's how things work, by tragedy. There's going to have to be blood and destruction. Right. But they do have this thing in common, the concern for innocence that is tied up with sacrifice. And that's maybe the closest that really a manly man can come to the teaching of peace. It's, uh... and he, yeah, and he sees too, of course, that... Um... I mean, this is brought home from lots of different angles, but he sees that this this family, and especially the, the brother and sister, these are people who, who have demonstrated themselves to be worthy of, of sacrifice. It's it's not just self-sacrificial in a way that, um, in a kind of unknowing way, that he's giving himself to the community in hopes that it will have this healing effect. I think it's rather that he's he sees uh, a family and two people in in particular that are worthy of his his sacrifice. I mean, yeah. he sees them as being meritorious in in lots of ways, yeah. uh, which is of course brought out in the partially comic scene uh, at the very end when the uh, the lawyer is reading the will, <laughs> and the lawyer <laughs> reads the the line about the Grand Torino going to to Tao as long as you don't do the following. To yeah, <laughs> yeah. Don't screw it up. Don't make it ugly. You know, enjoy it for what it is. Yeah, it, he does go to his death with that conviction that a man should live in a certain way, that he's got to be worthy. But it is important to think, right, that to a large extent, what he had taught the boy does comport with American self-interest. Work hard, get a date, get a woman who's smarter than you are. Uh, Walt picks up on this immediately, that the woman initiates the romance, that she gives the boy both the signals he needs, because he's really thick and shy, but also that she gives him the space and waits on him to act on it. Yeah. And it's not just that uh, she's good at choosing men, in a way none of these people are good at choosing women, but she's also good at letting the men be men after they are chosen, so that they can feel that they made it all happen. Like Walt says yeah. about himself, the best woman in the world and I got her to marry me. Right. One, one assumes that his wife was wise from the beginning, that she was wise enough to let him think that it was all up to him, the courtship and the marriage. Right. That so, might be the one moment in the film, too, where he's, I don't know, openly positive about his own talents. Yeah. Right? Yep. I mean, otherwise, he's very humble. Yep. You know, you can do everything you need to do in a house with duct tape and WD-40. Yep. You know, I don't 
<laughs> so yeah, that that's true. That's the one moment that reference to getting his wife to marry him that he says something that or suggests that he's gifted or or talented. Right, so. and and he says you know those best thing I ever did in my life hands down. He has absolutely no doubt about the fact that it was worth doing. In certain way, it was the defining thing in his life. It's the thing that made him most human. He obviously never tried to rule his wife, so to speak. She said the social calendar and everything that implies about community. But he wooed her. He had to try hard. He had to achieve something worth achieving by his manly daring. That's also expressed in his angry and dismissive language. That's also the daring to tell uncomfortable truths. And yep. he shows how friendly that can be with both the boy and especially the girl, who's just more mature and more intelligent and can learn more. The boy learns a lot of skills, but he doesn't do a lot of talking with Wall because there's not much talking the boy can do at this point. <laughs> he takes the sister's word that he really is intelligent. He doesn't look for real evidence of this or come up with tests or anything. Mm-hmm. He'll, he'll believe the girl, but he talks to the girl as an equal. That shows that it was not easy for him to court and that he really thought this was an extraordinary thing that he managed to do that. Not everybody gets that. It's not just a thank your lucky stars moment. It's also something to be proud of in yourself. Uh, mm-hmm. And that shows something about the ambiguous character of manliness that, on the one hand, he thinks so well of himself because he got that woman to marry him. But on the other hand, the only reason he thinks well of himself is because he knows she was superior to him. If you think that you're just owed such and such a wife, or that, of course, such and such a wife would wed you, then there's no reason to be super excited or, or proud about it. It's just taken for granted, not taken as merely shy of a miracle. Right. In some ways, he's aware that he is inferior to something worth getting. There's this tension. You have to think that you're good enough to, to get something good, but on the other hand, you have to think that such and such a woman is better than you. In a different way, it plays out with the Hmong family, especially the boy and girl. He thinks he's better than they are, takes them under his wing with assuredness. He knows how to deal with things. But on the other hand, he does think that they're worth more than he is in a certain specific way. And that's the only part that goes beyond anything like Mm self-interest. Even with the wife, he says, best thing I ever did in my life, hands down. He means best for him. But in this other case, he has to learn about something else. Why would you do something that's in no way in your self-interest? When he sees, um, obviously he sees in them just great potential. We do know that he's not well, he's sick. Yep. And so he knows his life is is coming to an end in the not-too-distant future. Well, yeah, he's realistic about his situation. Yeah, he appreciates, because of their quite distinctive characters, these two um, Hmong people have great things in store for them. You know, that they're going to live good lives, decent lives, yep. uh, fulfilling lives, lives devoted to, to others. Yep. And so he, I think he sees that they can have the kind of life that he appreciates and the kind of life that he doesn't really see around him and that he doesn't really see, sadly, in his own children. Yep. Right? And so uh, that's you... why he gives the, uh, the Grand Torino, of course, to the boy and not... <laughs> Not to his own kids. Yep, because they wouldn't appreciate. He thinks that that thing was made to be loved and to to further human love. Specifically, that's how a boy impresses a girl, shows her a good time, and the kind of freedom that you can move around. Mm -hmm. You know, that's not an exalted sense, by the way, of what a man contributes to romance. (laughs) But but it is a real contribution, and it doesn't work otherwise. He wants that to work out. He wants it to lead to something good. And he does show how, how much he thinks a good life is worth. It's a shocking thing. You, you never see that. But he does think that a life worth living, that a good life or an American way of life 
is worth a sacrifice. It's, mm-hmm. Ultimately, I think that's why people were so shocked. At some level, they realized that they don't seem to match the means and the ends. Should be sacrificing for something holier or greater or more self-involved or whatever, but not just because you, you really believe in this. And these kids do have, because of him, a chance to be better than he was. For one thing, they're cleverer, and for another, they're more innocent, and they won't have to do what he did and live with what he lived. It's yeah, uh, don't, yeah. he, he does take the, the dark passions of the soul out of their lives. He takes himself out, and he takes also the, the gang. There's a space now for youth, for freedom, for innocence that just didn't exist before. And it seems like that matters more to him than the social stuff that you see, that Detroit is a hellhole, that nobody cares about other people. I'm not trying to talk bad about Detroit, I just mean in the movie, that it's not a place where anybody would choose to live, and everybody who yeah. does live there feels trapped. Even the gangsters, the various gangs you see, apparently they think they've got nothing better to do with their lives. They prey on their own because that's all they find. There really is nothing for anybody. But there's a way out for some people and there's a way for a community to live outside of this kind of catastrophe. You can deal with apparently the social and economic troubles if it is possible for the just to live without terror of the lawless. That's what he gives to these decent people. Yeah, I mean, the Mong family is well poised to, to live a decent and good life, it seems, if they can somehow escape the terror of the gang. I mean, there there must be, what, 30 to 40 people at the house when there's the, yep. the Mong party. So there's, there's real community and substance yep. and dedication there. Yeah, I think the suggestion is that community can find a way to survive despite the social and and, uh, political or material deprivations. And especially Tao, now that he understands a little bit about um, his own capacities and and that it's not so difficult to uh, to thrive in the world. It's just that you need a little self confidence and a few tools, yep. and you can you can and, make your way. And you need a certain kind of friendship. Getting a job through a friend means that somebody's willing to stick his neck out for you. That somebody's willing to believe in you and take a chance. Because who knows if I'm good enough to do anything, my friend has to help me out for me to believe that I am good enough to do this. Then you see there that ethnic communities used to do that, all sorts of associations, but now these kids are just lost and alone and there's nobody there to talk to them or to help them out. But this guy's there and he's willing to do it, not because he's inventing the wheel, but because he thinks that's the American way. And he does think that the point of working hard and getting ahead or going to college because the girl is so smart is so that you can live a good family life. He doesn't expect that these kids end up millionaire CEOs or whatever. He expects that they be capable of of protecting and enjoying a family life. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it really is a movie. In part, I guess you could could call it, uh, insofar as it's a judgment upon or a critique of Walt's sons and their way of life, it's a it's a it's a kind of critique of a certain kind of bourgeois American individualism. On the other hand, I think it's a fairly elaborate defense of a certain kind of bourgeois Americanism. You can sort of see the both the critique and the and the praise of a certain kind of Americanism operating on two on two levels. Yeah. Very hopeful about Ameri- a certain kind of America, right? And very pessimistic about a, a certain kind of America. Yep. There's no doubt running through the movie that both the character and then the director really love America. But they have no illusions about what's wrong when people are too estranged from each other. And 
strange as it is because a lot of the important stuff is done in throwaway scenes that just last 30 seconds or what have you it okay. does nail a lot of things that you can recognize if you think seriously about what does it mean to be a stranger what does it mean to be alien to people in such and such ways and there's no problem with figuring out that family solves a lot of these problems americans didn't mm -hmm. invent family but they need to stick to it and that it really works the mong are better than the americans in this film at family and community but the Americans are much better at self-confidence and getting ahead. And mm -hmm. that has nothing to do with racism or anything like that. It has to do with different habits of mind and body. It suggests that, you know, anybody who watches this movie would uh, see these things and admire them because the Americans are right to believe in themselves and to think that you can get ahead in this life, although you're going to have to try hard. But on the other hand, the Hmong are right and anybody in America would recognize it. This was a wide release movie. Everybody is supposed to see it and think, oh yeah, I know what family looks like. That's what it's supposed to be. It, right. uh, it doesn't preach to you what family is like. There's no dialogue about it and that. It just shows you and the question is, do you recognize it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's a very well-written movie. I, I think I had thought that Eastwood was a screenwriter, but he's not. No. I think the screenwriter was very restrained yep. in, the, in the sorts of lines that he, he gave, particularly to Walt, but also to the other characters. People don't say things that don't need to be said. It's yeah. remarkably economical in that sense. And so the stuff that they do say is more memorable and points you to what's really on their minds. Right. You know, this is why you're supposed to have a happy ending movie. It's just more easy to see that way how actions and consequences are tied up with character. You can understand yeah. more when you see what people can do. And so the dialogue really helps along the action and never slows down what's supposed to happen. You see that these people are confronted with such and such situations. How do they understand it? How do they deal with it? What are they learning? What are you supposed to learn about this? It's incredibly intelligent without being pedantic. Mm -hmm. By inclination, I think about such and such a scene for five to ten minutes, but the movie just wraps it up in 30 seconds. And that's the difference between a movie and a podcast. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Well, this has been good fun. Yeah, I'm so glad we got to talk about this flag. I hope our audience will love this. It's been great. It's been great fun. Yeah. Well, we should uh, do it again. Just we'll have to pick another movie as good as Gran Torino. Yeah. You know what? Let's find some of the Jeff Nichols movies and let's talk about that. They also are movies about manliness in America, but more about what's wrong rather than what's right. They hurt in a certain sense, the more you recognize the realities they speak to. But right. the director, very talented, clearly loves the people he's talking about in the country. We'll do some of that. Sounds good. Okay, thanks a lot, Flag. This has been great. Been fun. And uh, I'll see you soon. Bye-bye. Sounds good. Bye-bye.